for which I'm thankful. Okay, if you're there, 1 Peter chapter 3, I'm going to be reading from verse 8. Finally, Peter, when he says finally, doesn't mean it's the end of the letter. If you've got a Bible, you can just look and you can see that he's only actually about halfway through. So when he says finally, it's not meaning we're done. What he's saying is, I'm summing up. So what Peter's doing here is beginning to sum up what he's said so far in this letter. He's recapping what he said. And really the two main things which Peter's driving at in this letter is he's saying to those these believers he's writing to, don't give in to fear and be faithful witnesses to Jesus. Don't give in to fear, be faithful witnesses to Jesus. And I think it's worth us just taking a bit of a moment at that point and uh, thinking about what's happening in the world at the moment with coronavirus and just thinking about how we should respond to that as a church and uh, some of the things we should do practically. So I think that part of our witness at this time is that we display confidence in God at this time. We can read First Peter and each week be hearing about how we're not to give in to fear and how we're to be good witnesses to Jesus. That doesn't really mean anything until it means something, and it means something at a time like this, when there is so much fear around. So at this time, we need to be those who don't give in to fear and who are faithful witnesses to Jesus. We also need to face Facts. The reality is that we human beings are generally very poor at identifying risk correctly. As of today, about 3,500 people have died of coronavirus from a global population of 7,000 million. And uh, people die. Just in the UK this year, there will be about 160,000 people who die from heart disease. There will be 140,000 people who die from cancer. There'll be 70,000 people who die from respiratory diseases. There'll be 25,000 people who die from digestive diseases. There'll be 20,000 people who die from mental and behavioral disorders. There's going to be 17,000 people who die from regular seasonal flu. The reality is that everyone dies. And a lot of the time we live as if that doesn't happen. And when we're faced with something like coronavirus, we're reminded and people go into a panic. Now, for us Christians, this shouldn't cause us to panic. Actually, it should remind us what we're here for. Our mission is to tell people the good news about Jesus Christ, who promises us life forevermore. The promise of the Christian gospel is death isn't the last word, but life is. And so we want to call people into faith in Christ and that hope of life. Death is real, and we need to witness to the fact that life in Christ is real too. We need to be reminded of that. Also, we need to just be honest. At the moment, no one knows quite how coronavirus will develop, but at the moment, it's, it's not the plague. It's not the plague. But even if it were, then we Christians shouldn't give in to fear, and we should continue to be good witnesses to Jesus. I found this great illustration of this by an American author called Eric Metaxas. He says this, Between 250 and 270 AD, a terrible plague, believed to be measles or smallpox, devastated the Roman Empire. At the height of what came to be known as the Plague of Cyprian, after the bishop Cyprian, who chronicled what was happening, 5,000 people died every day in Rome alone. That is plague. The plague coincided with the first empire-wide persecution of Christians under the Emperor Decius. 
Not surprisingly, Decius and other enemies of the church blamed Christians for the plague. People are always looking for somebody to blame. That claim was, however, undermined by two inconvenient facts. Christians died from the plague like everybody else, and unlike everybody else, they cared for the victims of the plague, including their pagan neighbors. This wasn't new. Christians had done the same thing during the Antonine Plague a century earlier. Rodney Stark writes in his book, The Rise of Christianity, that Christians stayed in the afflicted cities when pagan leaders, including physicians, fled. Candida Moss, a professor of New Testament and early Christianity, notes that an epidemic that seemed like the end of the world actually promoted the spread of Christianity. By their actions in the face of possible death, Christians showed their neighbors that Christianity is worth dying for. This witness came to mind after listening to a story on the radio. Host Robert Siegel interviewed Stephen Rowden, who volunteered for Doctors Without Borders in Monrovia, Liberia. Rowden's a British doctor. This was during the Ebola crisis a few years back. Rowden's grim task was to manage the teams that collected the bodies of Ebola victims. Rowden and his team retrieved 10 to 25 bodies a day. Since close contact with the victims is the chief means by which the usually deadly virus is spread, Rowden and his team members lived with the risk of becoming victims themselves. What's more, living in the midst of this death and suffering took its toll. Rowden recalled entering a house and finding the body of a four-year-old victim who had been abandoned by her family. With typical English understatement, he said, I found that a very sad case. Rowden's experience prompted Siegel to ask him if he was a religious man, to which Rowden replied, I am, yes, I'm a practicing Christian. When Siegel then asked whether what he saw tested his faith, Rowden said that, no, I got great strength from my faith and the support of my family. Nearly 18 centuries after the plague of Cyprian, Christianity still prompts people to run towards the plague when virtually everyone else is running away. I thought that was such a helpful story. What are we to do? When coronavirus gets reported for the first time in Bournemouth, as it certainly will be, how are we going to respond? We're to be those who don't give in to fear, but continue to be good witnesses to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, practically... Uh, the elders and trustees are, of course, discussing how we should respond, and essentially that means that we're following the advice of Public Health England, and uh, we'll take that advice seriously. I know that one area people can be concerned about is taking communion, as we do most weeks. At the moment, there isn't any risk to taking communion more than normal. Actually, you're more likely to catch something chatting with somebody over coffee at the end of the service than you are by sharing communion with them. But if you are unwell, just as a courtesy to others, uh, please feel, uh, it's probably best not to take communion enough. I don't feel unwell anymore, but I've had a cough for the first three weeks, so I won't take communion today just because I don't want to cause any issues for anyone else. So if you've had a cold or a cough, please do that as well. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are the Lord. I thank you for the example and witness of your people through the ages. Thank you that so often Christians have run towards the plague rather than from it, and in doing so have demonstrated the reality of their faith and caused others to follow you. And I pray for us at this time. I pray that yeah, we'll be people who don't give in to fear, but remain as faithful witnesses of Jesus.
And I pray that at this time there would be many opportunities for us to make plain the hope that we have in you. I ask that today's scripture would really equip us for that, make us uh, more effective in our witness to the truth of Jesus Christ and the hope that we have of life that conquers death. Amen. Okay, let's get back into the passage. First thing, evangelism means being countercultural. Today's message is about evangelism. It's about speaking about Jesus. Evangelism means being countercultural. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Back at the beginning of chapter 2 of this letter, Peter lists five things that we're to rid ourselves of. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And here he gives us five things that we're to do. Be like-minded, sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and humble. And uh, these things are counter-cultural. We're to be like-minded, not malicious. We're to be like-minded. This means that we share the same thoughts and attitudes Peter's not saying that we need to think exactly the same thing about everything. We're not going to have the same opinions on issues of politics or your favorite food or your sports team. He's not talking about that kind of stuff. What Peter's saying is that we need to work together cooperatively, not competitively. In the church, we're to be united in the same goals. We're to have a, there's to be a harmony about us, like in an orchestra where all kinds of different instruments which might look like they're competing actually come together in something which sounds beautiful or in a sports team watching England play Wales yesterday and you've got guys all kinds of different sizes and shapes and playing different positions on the field but together coming together as a team with the same goal in mind that's the kind of image I think Peter has in mind for us here be like-minded work together don't compete with one another don't be malicious towards each other be like-minded, be cooperative. Prayer is a huge part of that. We put a big emphasis upon prayer in this church. On Friday, we were praying together again throughout the day. Praying together is a way that we get like-minded because prayer is where we find the mind of Christ. Peter says to be sympathetic, not deceitful. Sympathy can seem a very weak thing, kind of tea and sympathy. But biblically, sympathy is a strong thing. Biblical sympathy is about actively participating in the sufferings of others. This is what Jesus did. It tells us in Hebrews 4, We do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one, Jesus, who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet did not sin. That's real sympathy. And the Bible commends those who show a Christ-like sympathy. Hebrews 10.34, you suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves are better and lasting possessions. That's real sympathy. sympathy. Real sympathy is personal. It's costly. It's about aligning ourselves, identifying with those in need. Be sympathetic. Be loving, not hypocritical. The kind of love that Peter's talking about here is a, is a family love, a brotherly love, a sisterly love. It's a, a love that's founded on blood. You're connected to your family by blood relationship. And in the church, we're connected together because of the blood of Christ, which has pulled us, joined us together. And there's to be a, a brotherly, a sisterly, a family love about us. That kind of love, brotherly love, is, is robust. It's not fickle. It sticks through thick and thin 
That means that brotherly love is able to survive fights and arguments. You know, in a family, there are times when conflict comes, and sometimes in church life, we butt heads together. But brotherly love, family love, is able to survive that and work through it. Brothers spur one another on. We're told to be like-minded, to be cooperative, not competitive, but there's a sense in which we're to spur each other on. That's what brothers do. If you, if you had a brother or if you've got uh, sons, you'll know this. What brothers do is they spur each other on. I can climb higher up that tree than you can. I can run faster than you can. What brothers do is spur each other on to greater exploits. And in the church, we're to do that. We're to spur each other on to greater exploits in Christ. Brotherly love is also protective. It's how it works in the school playground. You're going to pick a fight with me, you've got to pick a fight with my brother as well. There should be a protectiveness about us in our love for each other. Brotherly love is also humorous. One of the things I'm really grateful in our eldership team here at Gateway is the way that we laugh together. I think over the 12 years that I've been at this church, there have been some real dark days, but I think every day when I've been with my brothers, we've also made each other laugh. And that's how brotherly love is. You bring some humor, and we need that in our lives. Now, these things, these, this robustness, this spurring each other on, this protectiveness, this, this humorousness, these are all great characteristics in church life, to live that way, brotherly love. He says, be compassionate, not envious. Compassion is one of our three mission-defining words, venture, purity, and compassion we talk about a lot. Jesus was compassionate, says in Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. That's real compassion, the forgiving, compassionate love of Christ. says uh, in Mark a story about Jesus, a man came with coronavirus, filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man, didn't elbow tap or foot tap, (laughs) reached out his hand and touched the man. Now imagine that because actually leprosy was horrific and in the world in which Jesus was living and ministering, leprosy was something which people ran from, didn't understand the medicine behind it, the science behind it, and it was seen as massively contaminating and physically disfigurating. Bits of your your body fall off if you have leprosy. and So nobody would touch a leper because they thought they'd get physically contaminated, but also kind of socially and morally, spiritually contaminated by a leper. Nobody touched a leper. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the leper. Jesus ran towards the plague. That's true compassion. Tells us in Mark 6, some more of this, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is the one who has been compassionate towards us. And we're called to be compassionate towards one another. Not envying each other. Being compassionate towards each other. And then Peter says we're to be humble. Not slandering. Again, this is a Christ-like attitude. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Humility is the opposite of pride. Pride is something which actually God opposes. 1 Peter 5, 5 tells us that God opposes the proud, but shows favor or gives grace to the humble. Pride is when we make gods of ourselves, whereas 
Humility is godly. Pride is when we put ourselves on the throne of our lives. I'm the boss. I'm in charge. I did it my way. And those of us who follow Jesus are not to be proud. We're not to be too proud to learn. We're not to be too proud. This could be a big one for us to admit our need of others. We're not to be too proud to take advice or heed warning at times. We're not to display the kind of false humility, which is, oh, I couldn't possibly when we're asked to serve in some way. Now, these five characteristics Peter lists, being like-minded, being sympathetic, love, compassion, humility, these things are countercultural and they're to give shape to the way that we live. And living this way leads to blessing. Pick it up again in verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. What Peter does here is to mirror what God spoke to Abraham. When God first called Abraham and said, I'm going to choose you to be the father of my people. Genesis 12 God calls Abraham and says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You're called to be a blessed blessing. And when people curse you, leave it to God to sort it out. Don't try and sort it out yourself. Leave it to him. You're called to be a blessed blessing blessing. Don't do things the worldly way. Don't do things the way of the world, which is about malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Do things the Jesus way, the way of harmony and sympathy and love and compassion and humility. Live that way. Be countercultural and be blessed. Evangelism means being countercultural. The second thing is that evangelism means suffering. Verse 13, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Peter asks a rhetorical question. He says, look, if you're living a good life, who's going to do you harm? Generally, that's the general principle. If you're a good person doing good, people don't want to hurt you. But he says... The reality is that there will be times, even if you're living a good life, when some people might want to do harm to you. There's times when people hurt Christians just because they don't like Christians. That's just how it goes. And Peter says that the Lord won't necessarily remove us from that kind of experience. What he says is that in that kind of experience, we're to trust God and not give in to fear. Don't fear. Now, how can you not fear in a situation which is frightening? These people that Peter's writing to, some of them were in frightening situations. And if you're in a frightening situation, often the least helpful thing somebody can say to you is, don't be afraid. That just makes it worse. But Peter says, do not fear. Now, how do we do that? What he says is, don't fear, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord's. 
What he's saying is get this sorted in your heart. Recognize that Jesus is Lord. Recognize that he has more authority, more power than those who are being hostile towards you. Yes, you're experiencing hostility, but Jesus has more power than those who are oppressing you. In the verse 5 of chapter 1 of this letter, Peter says, you through faith are shielded by God's power. Pick up the shield of God's power. Allow the Holy Spirit to work in you and through you. Think of the Apostle Peter's own experience of this. Peter, who denied Christ, was terrified when Jesus was arrested and crucified. Peter was terrified, too scared to admit that he was a follower of Christ. Day of Pentecost, Peter gets filled with the Holy Spirit, goes out into the streets of Jerusalem, gets up and preaches about Christ crucified, and 3,000 people come to faith. What happens? What happens was Peter had an experience of the empowering presence of God. Jesus said in Luke 12, When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry, don't fear about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. The Apostle Paul described how God spoke to him and said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Got to believe that if we face hostility for our faith, the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit are sufficient for us. We don't need to fear. God is in control. Look how it says in verse 17, if it's God's will that you suffer for doing good. God is in control of it, even the suffering. And if we suffer for our faith, that actually is to witness for our faith. Like that professor in that illustration earlier said, Christianity is worth dying for. Christianity is worth dying for. Jesus died for us. He suffered for us to bring us to God. If we face suffering for our faith, we shouldn't give in to fear. We should take up the shield of faith and understand and believe the sufficiency of God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Third, third thing is that evangelism means speaking. Verse 15 again, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Peter expects believers to be asked about their faith. What's the reason for your hope? Now, I think uh, it's unusual. It's rare for people to say to you as a Christian, tell me about Jesus. But they will ask you, what's going on in your life? What's your story? And hopefully they'll see that we have hope in life. Where does that come from? On the train on uh, Thursday, coming back from Glasgow, uh, Rich, and, uh, Rich Stamp and Nathaniel were talking together and uh, a woman sitting next to them across the aisle for some reason got the impression that Richard was an author. And said, are you an author? Uh, Richard said, no, I'm not, not an author, I'm a pastor. And then he said, but I have got a great book for you to read. And Richard carries these around in his bag, which I think we've got some at the back. A little book by Glenn Scrivener, Divine Comedy, Human Tragedy, which is a great uh, way, uh, telling of, of the gospel about Jesus. And gave her this little booklet and said something about his faith. That was a great example of this, of 
being ready to speak about the hope that we have. And the way that we're to speak to people, Peter says here, is with gentleness and respect. That's a challenge. In our society, we don't do gentleness and respect because we do Facebook and Twitter. And Facebook and Twitter are not gentle and respectful. They're hostile and aggressive and opinionated. Now, our witness needs to live up to our hope. We have this amazing hope in Jesus. Our witness needs to live up to that. We've got a hope-filled story to tell. We've been lovingly created by a good God. We've been redeemed by Jesus. We've been transformed by him. We need to get better at speaking. I need to get better at speaking about the hope that I have in Christ. Evangelism means speaking. Let's talk about Jesus this week. Look for an opportunity to speak to somebody about the hope that you have. Coronavirus is going to give us loads of opportunities to speak about the hope that we have. And the last thing is that evangelism means rock-solid confidence in Jesus' victory. Verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That's the very heart of the gospel. Jesus died for us. He took our place in order to bring us to God. Jesus has reached out across hostile territory to lead us into the safe ground of God's love. That is wonderful. That's the good news. That's what we proclaim. That's what we urge those who don't yet know Jesus to respond to. Jesus has come. He's died in our place. He's made the way open for you to come into relationship with God. That's the gospel. That's what we celebrate. That's where our confidence needs to be. Peter then says more about this, but he says it in some things which can be a little bit confusing for us. He says, Jesus was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven in it and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. We've got to have rock-solid confidence in Jesus' victory. But what Peter says here about Noah and about Jesus going to speak to the imprisoned spirits is somewhat mysterious. There's been lots of debate about exactly what he's speaking of. Uh, what does Peter mean when he says that Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits? Uh, Martin Luther says about this, a wonderful text is this and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. Now if Luther, who's one of the great Christian leaders of the last 500 years, wasn't sure what Peter's meaning here, then we shouldn't worry too much if we're not too sure what Peter means here either. Uh, there are four main things people think that Peter is meaning. If you want to get into it, I've got a big pile of commentaries on my desk. You're welcome to come and look at it. And... But the big point is this. This is a point that Peter is making. That Jesus died 
and Jesus lives, and Jesus rules. There have always been those who have been disobedient, who have rebelled against God. That was true in the days of Noah, and it's true today. There are those who don't accept and follow God, but you can accept and follow God. You can be saved. And the resurrection of Jesus is the promise of this, the historical reality that Jesus rose from the dead is the guaranteed promise for us of life in God's forever. And that promise is made real at our baptisms. Uh, Peter says here, this water symbolizes baptism that saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. The illustration, the comparison he's making is Noah who was baptized. Noah built an ark and he was baptized. He and his family, they passed through the waters of the flood and passed from death into life. And when we are baptized, it's a sign of that happening to us, that we have left death and we've come into life in Christ. We've entered new life in God. That's why baptism is so important. It's why if you have not been baptized, you need to be. That declaration, that appeal of a clear conscience before God, that sign, proclamation before all the powers, all the angels and authorities that you have put your trust in Jesus, that you believe that the righteous died for the unrighteous to bring you to God and that life is yours now and forever. That's why we love baptisms at Gateway Church. Christ is ruling over all the powers. He's gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Christians, we need to have this rock-solid confidence in Jesus' victory. Those of you who have not yet come to follow Jesus, this is the invitation. Put your trust in him. Come to this place where, even if, you don't even if there's much which is confusing at the moment, come to that place of faith in him where you're saying, Jesus, I'm putting my trust in you. I want to believe you for my life now and forever. We need to believe this. We need to live it. And we need to witness to it. Do not give in to fear, but witness to the reality of the hope that we have in Christ who has defeated death and has promised us life now and forever. Amen? Let's pray, and I'll have back to Nathaniel and the band. Jesus, thank you so much for this mighty scripture. It tells us how to live and fills us with hope. And I pray, Lord, that we would be people who, yeah, don't give way to fear. I pray even with the very practical, very real stuff of what's happening in the world at the moment, I pray, Jesus, that we would not give in to fear, but we would trust you and uh, we would witness to the reality of our faith. Think of the example of those in the past who've done that in very difficult circumstances. I pray for us in our context that we would, I pray this week, Lord, you give us each opportunity to speak about the hope that we have, the hope that we have in you. Let us get better at speaking. Let us have a rock-solid confidence in your victory. Let us live in a way which demonstrates to our world the reality of our faith. Let us, as, as a family together, uh, encourage and build each other up. And uh, Jesus, Jesus, let us know more and more of your power, your Holy Spirit at work amongst us, I pray, this day and in these days in which we live. 
this year. Lord, may we see more people getting baptized, making that declaration of faith in you, the promise of life and the banishment of death. This we ask in your holy name. Amen.